Modern Love, the podcast, is supported by... This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Produced by the iLab at WBUR Boston. From the New York Times and WBUR Boston, this is Modern Love. Stories of love, loss, and redemption. I'm your host, Meghna Chakrabarty. When you think back to sex ed class, it's not hard to come up with a couple of memories that might have scarred you for life. Eggs that you had to take care of, dolls that really cried, flower bag babies, not to mention having actual discussions about sex in the classroom. But in this week's essay, it's actually a parent, Hope Edelman, who's a little traumatized by her daughter's experience of sex ed. Her piece is read by Gillian Anderson. You know her as Agent Scully from The X-Files and Stella Gibson in The Fall. She's starring now in the new Netflix show, Sex Education. The memo from the middle school came home in my daughter's backpack on a Friday afternoon. Next week, your sixth-grade child will participate in a flower sack baby exercise. All sixth-graders were to report to school Monday with five-pound bags of flour dressed up as dolls and carry them everywhere for the week. The idea was to teach them the responsibilities of teenage parenthood. We encourage parental participation to make this exercise a success, the note concluded. There were so many confusing directives, I didn't know where to begin. How could a flower sack simulate an actual infant? Why did all the newborns weigh just five pounds? And weren't sixth graders a little young for this kind of thing? We picked babies out of a hat today, my 11-year-old daughter announced, punching a straw through the top of a juice box. Mine's a boy. One girl picked twins, but she started crying because it would be too hard, so Miss Lee let her give one back. Exactly what was being taught here, I couldn't help but wonder. Also, mine's adopted, she continued. He's from Japan. I don't think Americans can adopt from Japan, I said. Mom, she said. It's a game. But was it? Twenty years ago, I knew a 14-year-old girl whose classmates in a similar exercise carried raw eggs around for a week. The children took it seriously, cradling the eggs between their palms, crying jagged sobs when they broke, 
still, those ninth graders were physically mature enough to get a baby started. My daughter and most of her classmates weren't. What impression would the week make on a child her age? So far, she just thought it was really cool to take a doll to school. From a website, she chose the name Fumiko because it meant little friend. Fumiko's middle name, she decided, would be from nature. She asked for ideas. I suggested rain, river, and leaf. She promptly vetoed them, then asked me to leave her room. What school memos never tell you is how much parental participation your sixth grader will tolerate. Eleven-year-old girls occupy a notoriously wobbly zone between childhood and adolescence. A mother who's an embarrassment in the morning can be someone to adore at dinner and a pariah again by bedtime. Yet beneath this ambivalence, girls are desperate for reminders that we love them, and always will, even as they're abruptly banishing us from their rooms. From my own fractured adolescence, I know a mother's patience and fortitude are what a daughter remembers most. My mother died of breast cancer when I was in high school. Too soon to teach me how to change a diaper, manage colic, or stay sane when my husband drove off each morning, leaving me with an infant who cried 14 hours a day. I never missed my mother more than when my daughter was born. Friends with newborns had mothers rushing over when they needed relief. There were days I thought I'd go mad from exhaustion and grief. This lasted ten weeks before the better parts of motherhood began. My mother hadn't given me everything, but I discovered that in 17 years she gave me enough. Still, I never forgot the longing and self-doubt of those first months, and I never wanted my daughters to feel it. I vowed to be a present, helpful mother for as much time as we'd have together. That's how I found myself 11 years later, stitching plastic bags filled with flour into the torso of a life-size infant boy doll. When I finished, I propped him on the kitchen counter. I stared at him. He stared at me. Fomiko Thistle Edelman, welcome to the world. The thing about Fomiko, of course, was that he had virtually nothing in common with an actual newborn. He didn't pee, poop, burp, spit up, or wake up shrieking like a siren the moment you lay him down. Neither did he break into adorable gummy smiles, triggering a love so sudden and huge you didn't know how to make it fit. Despite this, he bore a disquieting physical resemblance to a real baby, from his dewy gaze to 
wrinkly ankle skin. Monday morning, when I walked into the kitchen and saw him balanced on my daughter's hip, I literally tripped. Then I remembered who he was. The sight of one's 11-year-old daughter with her own baby is automatic parental freakout time, no matter what your politics. And for all I know, this was part of the school's subliminal plan. The week's message might have been lost on the students, but it surely wasn't lost on the parents. No way, no way did we want our preteens having babies. After school, when my daughter announced, our dolls sat on the grass and cheered for us during P.E., but the boys played keep away with theirs. The meaning of parental participation became clear. I lifted Fumiko from the couch and handed him back to my daughter. Diaper change time, I said. And so the week began. Every morning, when my daughter strapped Fumiko to her chest, I showed her how to press his head safely against her collarbone. At dinner, he sat in a high chair by her side. Afterward, I made her sweep up the non-existent mess. When she laid him on her bed to do homework, I instructed, If he's old enough for a high chair, he's old enough to roll, and had her lay him on the carpet. And still, caring for Fumiko wasn't work. It was unprecedented fun. She wondered aloud if she could take him to school next week, too. I, on the other hand, took an alarming detour into irrationality as the week wore on. The more Fumiko's care diverged from real infant care, the more insistent I became. At night, I'd hijack my daughter's toothbrushing time, claiming he needed to be fed. I wouldn't hold him while she showered, citing all the showers I'd skipped as a new mother. I considered setting her alarm for 1 a.m., keeping her awake for an hour, and waking her again at 5 "'Aren't you taking this too far?' asked my husband, the family's voice of reason. "'But I didn't think so. Wasn't the whole point to make it real?' So, on Thursday, when my daughter asked me to babysit Fumiko during her after-school drama class, I refused. I had to go to the library. A book deadline was approaching, and I needed time to write.' But I can't bring him to class. I can't bring a newborn into the library, I said, and sent her off. All day, I replayed that scene in my mind. Her request, my refusal, her downcast face, my obstinacy, her tears. The more I thought about it, the worse I felt. What was wrong with me? I could take Fumiko to the library, or 
leave him in the trunk of my car. I mean, he was a doll. I could help my daughter. Except I couldn't. Like every motherless mother, I live with an acute awareness that I can be taken from my children at any time. My biggest fear is leaving them before they can manage alone. Forcing my daughter to care for Fumiko wasn't punishment. It was preparation. If she, too, had to face motherhood without a mother one day, she'd be better equipped than I had been. But here's where the plan fell apart. By focusing on what I'd lost, I'd lost sight of what my daughter had. If, heaven forbid, she had a baby anytime soon, she wouldn't have to do it alone. I'd help her. Of course I'd help her. I'd be there. I was there. And I realized that what this experiment inspired in me wasn't anger or resentment, but envy. I was envious of my daughter because she had me. That afternoon, I met her at the bus stop with an apology. I'll take Fumiko today, I said. It's okay, Mom, she said breezily. I decided to bring him with me. In my absence, she'd figured out a plan. Wasn't that what I'd wanted? Then why did I suddenly feel so sad? The next morning, Famico's last day of school... We woke to a soft rain. After breakfast, my daughter strapped him to her chest one last time. She shrugged on her raincoat, grabbed an umbrella, and hugged me goodbye. From the front window, I watched her walk to her father's car. I was proud of her for making it through the week. I was proud of myself for finally backing off. And then, just as I was about to turn away, I saw a moment of such grace it nearly stole my breath. As my daughter bent to get into the car, her jacket bunched open, and she automatically rounded her shoulders and moved her umbrella closer to keep Fumiko dry. The natural gesture of maternal tenderness was so small it would have been easy to miss. But I think somehow it was meant for me to see.
That's Jillian Anderson reading Hope Edelman's essay, Maternal Wisdom, Five Pounds Worth. We'll catch up with Hope after the break. This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I think I know this connection. Look, Bath is a city in England, Sandwich is a city in England, Reading is a city in England, and I'm going to guess Derby is a city in England. I started Wordle 194 days ago, and I haven't missed a day. The New York Times Games app has all the games right there. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. I always have to get genius. I've seen you yell at it and say, that (laughs) should be a word. Totally should be a word. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. At this point, I'm probably more consistent with doing the crossword than brushing my teeth. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. When I have to look up a clue to help me, I'm learning something new. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. When Hope Edelman came to talk with us, she actually brought Fumiko with her. He's just sitting here barefoot, you know, in his, his little jumper, staring ahead at nothing. <laughs> he is creepy. I, you know, he, he really is creepy. I walked into NPR with him, like, sort of balanced on my hip, and the, the guard at the door gave me a look. Because at, at first glance, he really does look real. And Hope sent us a picture to prove it. It's up at our website, wbur.org slash modernlove. It's now eight years since Hope's piece came out, and she says Fumiko has become the stuff of family legend. He continues to live in my daughter's bedroom. She's now in college. He sits on top of her bookshelf, and we live in a canyon that's in a fire zone in Los Angeles. And occasionally we have to evacuate, and whenever we evacuate, I make sure that Fumiko comes with us because he is one of those valued family heirlooms now that we wouldn't want to lose. And Hope still remembers her daughter shielding Fumiko from the rain. Well, that moment at the very end of the piece struck me because it wasn't just that she presented herself as capable, but that I saw her showing empathy. And when I had said that my mother hadn't given me everything, but she'd given me enough, I felt that she'd given me the skills or the care that I needed in order to be able to care for a child and love them with my whole heart. And in that little moment, I felt that there was some confirmation that I had given my daughter the same, and that even if I didn't live to see her into adulthood, that still would be the foundation that was most important. But Hope says she was determined to be with her daughters as they became adults. 
Because I was 17 when my mom died, that was sort of always a number in my head. You know, if I can just get both of them to 17, if I can just be at their high school graduations, I will have given them most of what they need because my mom gave me most of what I needed. And so as the older one passed 17 and the younger one is right on the cusp, she'll be 17 in two weeks, I feel like they are have grown into very competent individuals, and I'm not as concerned about them as I was when they were younger. But as her daughters have grown, Hope has entered a new phase of parenting, one that she doesn't have a model for. We'd hit those moments where maybe I didn't know what to do or didn't know, you know, what a mother's role should be, and so I would ask them, and I would say... I really don't know how to handle this situation because I had to do this one on my own. And I can see that, you know, you'd like some help from me. So let's talk about how I can best be of support to you. I have gotten to the other side of the adolescent drama with my older daughter. And it's beautiful to have a 21-year-old. She's so terrific. I think I spent a lot of time being anxious and worried that I might not do it right. And, you know, I'm not 100% sure that there's a way to do it wrong. That's Hope Edelman. She's the author of the books Motherless Mothers and Motherless Daughters, which explore the lifelong effects of early loss. We've got more after the break. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I think I know this connection. Look, Bath is a city in England, Sandwich is a city in England, Reading is a city in England, and I'm going to guess Derby is a city in England. I started Wordle 194 days ago, and I haven't missed a day. The New York Times Games app has all the games right there. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. I always have to get genius. I've seen you yell at it and say, that <laughs> should be a word. Totally should be a word. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. At this point, I'm probably more consistent with doing the crossword than brushing my teeth. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. When I have to look up a clue to help me, I'm learning something new. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. Jillian Anderson says she related to Hope's story. It was something that I recognized in it, I guess. And also, you know, the humor in it, the line about, you know, that she could just stick the doll in the boot of her car. <laughs> so funny. Uh, and it was really moving, you know, what she, the lesson that she learned about herself and you know, and being a mother. And that grief, you know, to be able to be honest enough with oneself to recognize when one's actions are 
more about one's historical stuff than they are necessarily about the person that we think we're doing the caring gesture for. To turn that around and to have a parent who's willing to admit their mistakes is a gift, and it gets passed on. Thanks again to Jillian for reading this week's essay. Her new show is Sex Education, which debuts on Netflix January 11th. And here's Daniel Jones, editor of the Modern Love column for The New York Times. I just think Hope's essay is so funny and touching and unexpectedly loaded with the way it brings Hope to think about her own past and the loss of her mother. I don't know, these relationships just sort of haunt our lives in a way. And I love the way that she's able to, you know, look at her daughter and think, well, I don't need to leave my daughter on her own with all of this. Like, she has me. I don't have to teach her harsh motherhood lessons at the age of 11. It's just a really charming, funny, and deep meditation on what motherhood means for both mothers and daughters. Next week, Carmen Ijogo of True Detective. My husband's body was never found. The woman he was staying with waited four days to call the police. When they arrived, they found his ID, credit cards, unused airline ticket to New York, and two drawings. One said, drowned. The other, lonely head, dead. Modern Love is a production of the New York Times and WBUR, Boston's NPR station. It's produced, directed, and edited by Jessica Alpert, Caitlin O'Keefe, and John Parati. Original scoring and sound design by Matt Reed. The idea for the Modern Love podcast was conceived by Lisa Tobin. Iris Adler is our executive producer. Daniel Jones is the editor of Modern Love for the New York Times and advisor to the show. Music for the podcast, courtesy of APM. And if you love the show... Tell your friends about us. I'm Agna Chakrabarty. See you next week. <laughs>